from Meltem Demers and Jill Carlson. Welcome to What Grinds My Gears, a podcast about the bizarre and buzzworthy happenings in the world of cryptocurrency. Each week, we delve into one key theme and examine it through a broader financial, political, and cultural lens to learn from the past, understand the present, and explore the future. When people ask me how they can get some Bitcoin, there's really not a lot of places that I feel good about sending them. Well, have you heard of Voyager? Voyager is fast, competitive, and has great customer support. It's also 100% commission-free, meaning you don't pay unnecessary fees, and they support over 20 cryptocurrencies. What? You can sign up today at investvoyager.com gears to earn $25 worth of Bitcoin, or you can download the Voyager iOS app and register now. Okay, hold on. I'll be right back. Gotta go download Voyager. Thanks to our friends at Voyager for sponsoring this week's episode. All opinions expressed by Meltem, Jill, and podcast guests are solely their own opinions. This podcast is for informational purposes only and should not be relied upon as a basis for investment decisions. Meltem, Jill, and guests may maintain positions in the currencies, assets, and companies discussed in this podcast. This podcast is presented by Blockworks Group, the only media production company I trust. For exclusive content and events on crypto, visit them at blockworksgroup.io. They say that there are two certainties in life, death and taxes. And while I don't know of anyone who has yet managed to cheat death, I can promise you that there are those who have managed to dodge their taxes. For as long as governments have been levying taxes, people and businesses have been trying to evade them, and competing jurisdictions have been providing a way to do so. We call these, of course tax havens. Dating back to ancient Rome, republics, empires, and city-states have fought for commerce and capital flows by using tax policy. In the second century BC, the Roman Republic went to war with the successor to Alexander the Great, who ruled Macedonia, King Perseus. The Isle of Rhodes, which was a major port known for its low tax rate, was caught quite literally in the middle of the conflict and quibbled over which side to support. When Rome ultimately won, the Republic declared the neighboring island of Delos to be a tax-free area, thereby punishing Rhodes by undercutting her low-tax status and stealing away her commerce and her capital. Delos and Rhodes constituted the offshore tax havens of their time, the ancient versions of Bermuda, Singapore, Jersey, and the Caymans. In this episode, we'll be covering everything from ancient naval raids to 9-11, from biblical sinners to Swiss bankers. We're talking taxes, tax havens, privacy acts, money laundering, and, of course, Bitcoin. Can't talk about it without talking about Bitcoin. (laughs) (laughs) You know what's so funny, Jill? I was having a conversation with a friend the other day, and the two things I'm most excited about, with our, which are like consciousness and longevity and crypto, are the two things that you cannot avoid, death and taxes. <laughs> so we're quite literally trying to cheat death, and we are trying to invent new money. Well, this is a funny thing. Uh, within the crypto space, right, there's frequently, I find, a heavy overlap of people interested in cryogenics. And Hal Finney, who, of course, was one of the earliest earliest adopters of Bitcoin. Many people believe that he was Satoshi. He's been cryogenically frozen. And so I've said things about him 
he was trying to cheat death in taxes as well. We're all going to pay for our Alcor contracts in Bitcoin. Oh, God. It's going to be great. Oh, God. All right. So <laughs> all right, next, next week, we're discussing cryogenics, right? <laughs> That's right. Cryogenics. That's actually our new podcast is Crypto and Cryo. Oh, God. <laughs> I quit. Just kidding. Just kidding. As far back as the Bible, we've been complaining about the tax man. There's a story of Zacchaeus, who's seen as a sinner, who's working on behalf of the Roman Empire and levying an unfair tax on the Jews. And going just as far back, we have a history of people evading those taxes. Because here's the thing, Jill, when people work hard to earn money, they tend to want to keep it. And this introduces the age-old problem that we actually talked about last episode with Mesh Networks. How do we pay for public goods and resources that we want to consume? That's right. And this is a whole can of worms. And now we can have a political debate over whether taxes are good, bad, or ugly. I'm sure we have lots of listeners from the crypto sphere who are libertarians who've already made up their mind on this. So I'm not going to bother trying to change it in this episode. But the one thing that we know is that taxes are inevitable. Well, we have to pay for things. Actually, what's funny, so tonight, uh, Jill, we're recording this podcast, and I was late. And do you know why I was late? Tell me. I was stuck on the New York City subway. (laughs) So (laughs) here's a great example of something that costs a lot of money, maintaining public transport infrastructure. And one of the raging battles in New York right now is people who come to the city. So I pay an extra 4% city tax, right? Mm -hmm. And people who come to the city who drive in every day from New Jersey, they don't pay that extra 4%, but they consume a lot of the same public utilities and the same public goods that I do. And so there is a really contentious debate going on right now um, where New York City is going to introduce a congestion tax and they're going to charge people driving in from New Jersey a ton of money. And so New Jersey has retaliated by saying they're going to levy the same tax on New Yorkers. And we're like, that's fine because nobody ever goes to New Jersey. Yeah, LOL. (laughs) Thanks, Jersey. I'm like, go right ahead, baby. Go right ahead. Nobody goes to New Jersey. Anyways, it's fun. It's funny. It's like a modern day tax squabble. Well, I have two things to say about that. The first is at least you have public transit where you are. I'm in San Francisco where our idea of public transit is VC backed companies like Uber and Chariot. Firstly. Secondly, though, I mean, it's just interesting to see how these tales are just as old as time, right? Of these Different jurisdictions, whether it's on the micro scale, the city scale, the state scale, or the nation state scale, squabbling over these policies. Oh, so totally. let's get into some of the history of this. Let's get into it. So as we talked about, Jill, taxes are inevitable. I've accepted them as a reality, but so is tax evasion. And so to your point, uh, let's go back in history. You, I know, are a historian. So um, I'm excited about having this conversation with you. So many of today's tax havens actually um, exist for historical reasons. And many of them actually grew out of the UK and the British empire. In fact, the phrase offshore account, quote unquote, uh, was originally used to refer to the islands in the English Channel, Guernsey, Jersey, and the Isle of Man. The other thing, Jill, you'll be interested to know is I've actually been to Guernsey, uh, Jersey multiple times. 
Oh, were you were you opening offshore accounts, Melton? <laughs> I was not. We can get into that later in the episode, uh, but it is very interesting indeed. Absolutely. And so these locales, of course, were not alone in being used as tax havens. There were also other British territories, overseas islands, uh, like the Caymans, like Bermuda, like BVI, Turks and Caicos, Gibraltar, you name it, that have been used historically as tax havens. And this, of course, just developed as kind of a quirk of their relationship with the crown. This is also true of other former British colonies, Hong Kong, Singapore, Bahamas, Bahrain, Dubai. And it was funny to me, actually, just in doing some of the research for this episode, I've always kind of known, if you ask me, oh, name the tax havens, I probably would have just given you that laundry list. But never did I ever put together that, of course, these are all former British Empire colonies, territories. Some of them are, of course, still territories. Well, hold on, so, Jill. Let's not forget the original tax haven. Tell me. The United States of America. <laughs> this country oh, yeah. was born yeah. out of a tax revolt. It's kind of yeah. amazing. <laughs> yeah. No, that's very true. That's very true. And so, yeah, you you get, I mean, firstly, leave it to the Brits, but you get these dynamics, right, that have cropped up where in some ways it becomes a very favorable relationship between, say, Britain and Guernsey or Jersey to have this sort of option, right? Even if you just think about on the individual level of folks in government who want to have this option to get their money offshore. Um, but then you, of course, have this tension arise of these jurisdictional disputes. Of course. And I think an interesting example of that as well is um, all of the R&D that goes on in Ireland, right? Because as you know, R&D um, is actually, has very preferential tax treatment in Ireland. And what's interesting, so the Jersey joke, which I think is funny, Jersey is known uh, for its cows. So Jersey cows are very famous. It's known for its potatoes, uh, which are called Jersey Royals. And it's known for the thousands of hedge funds and law firms that operate out of Jersey. <laughs> so you got cows, you got potatoes, and you got finance. So very entertaining. What else do you need? What else do you need? But it's funny that you bring up Ireland. I just a few months ago took a flight that was passing through Dublin and flying to San Francisco. And it was one of the most packed flights I have ever taken. And it was, of course, just all of these Facebook, Google, you name it, oh, yeah. executives flying back and forth. It's one of the most popular routes. And exactly, it is in large part due to the preferential tax treatment. But so let's not get confused, though, because Ireland actually is not one of these British territories. It did not grow out of the British Empire. Ireland is actually a part of the European hub mm -hmm. of tax havens that we also have. Right. And I actually was born and raised in the European hub, the Benelux countries, Belgium, the Netherlands, Luxembourg, so Benelux, along with Liechtenstein, everyone's favorite, courtesy of the James Bond movie, also Switzerland. Um, and then, of course, we can't forget a third area that has developed more recently, really post-World War II, and that's Latin America, uh, particularly Panama, which we'll get to later, as well as Uruguay. Um, but also, actually, I want to add in that post-World War II, many people went to um, Argentina. So Buenos Aires is very European in feel for this reason, um, as well as a uh, Chile and uh, Peru. So there was a lot of activity of people moving to places. Um, and a lot of this has to do with actually, again, 
our last episode when we were talking about jurisdiction in a digital world, right? A lot of regulation is defined by jurisdiction. Same thing with tax law. And so a lot of these mechanics that people sort of work out are based on trying to ensure that the jurisdiction in which they earn capital is a jurisdiction that's favorable. So people actually pick up and move. Right. And so there's this really interesting dynamic. We talk a lot, of course, in economics, in finance, excuse me, about capital. Yeah, get it right, Jill. Get Get it it right. right. (laughs) This is is an academic podcast. It's finance. (laughs) So we talk a lot, though, about capital flight and how capital flows happen. But of course, where capital goes, often actually people go as well. And so you see these migratory patterns actually being driven by tax laws, which is kind of insane to think about. And you know, it makes sense though, because of course, being a tax haven, it turns out, is big business. It not only attracts capital, it also attracts business. That is right. And even inside of countries, competition has started to become fierce to be tax friendly. The states of New Jersey and Delaware, actually here in the U.S., became something of these tax havens um, in the 19th century because they made it really easy to incorporate. Um, and I'll actually say, so um, I own a few companies. You and I actually own one together for our podcast, right? And <laughs> we have opted to incorporate our companies in jurisdictions where um, there is no LLC tax because for us, it's easier to pay a filing fee, right? That's um, right. In the 1920s, some Swiss cantons, Swiss cantons, pardon, actually started to follow suit, um, starting with a canton of Zug. And uh, if you're a crypto oh person, God. you're very familiar with Zug. Uh, Zug is where Crypto Valley is located. And so it's been interesting to see um, how taxes have influenced patterns of where wealth goes and where startups go. I want to bring up... Well, it's- it's interesting. I just want to touch on Zug for a second. Mm-hmm. The history of Zug here is interesting because Zug was actually one of the most impoverished cantons in Switzerland at the time. In the 1920s. It was kind of like Jersey. They have beautiful cows. <laughs> I don't know about the potatoes in Zug. I'm sure uh, the cheese is great. The cheese, the cheese is excellent. Is yes. Cows but, and um, cheese go together. <laughs> But it was because it was this impoverished area that they actually, they slashed taxes and they became one of the leaders in this space. So, you know, that was really them trying to innovate in terms of regulation and, and, uh, you know, financial laws innovate themselves out of a corner. Well, and I think that is the same thing that you see in um, the Caymans, right? There's one building in the Caymans where literally every Cayman entity is registered. Um, I forget the address, but I know um, there's an entity I've worked with that's in the Caymans and literally every company that has a presence in the Caymans is registered in that one place. The other thing that's more relevant, um, that's a recent tax dodge, is um, people in the US will know this because we just paid taxes in April, and you probably felt this on your tax bill. Um, the Trump administration recently passed some tax changes changes in tax law. And one of the big changes they passed was uh, you're no longer able to deduct your state income tax that you pay from your federal tax, where historically you've right. been able to do that. And so for New Yorkers especially, you know, New Yorkers pay really high. I think California, New York, Connecticut are some of the most expensive states to live in because the state tax is really high. And 
so a lot of New Yorkers in 2018 actually sold their homes. Many hedge fund managers, uh, many ultra wealthy people in finance, they picked up and sold everything and moved to Florida. Um, here's my view. So I have this conversation with my family often because I'm like, I cannot believe that my effective tax rate, when you factor in uh, income tax, state tax, city tax, sales tax, property tax, I'm probably paying close to 60 to 70% tax, which is insane. At some point, you're just like, what is even the point? Well, so I have this conversation, but here's the thing, right? I could pick up my stuff and I could move to Jersey or the Caymans or friendly tax jurisdiction. But at the end of the day, I think there's also real opportunity costs in terms of quality of life. And it's like, okay, you could have a lot of money, but live in the middle of nowhere. And you could feel good because you pay no taxes. But at the end of the day, um, what's the point of living life if all you're doing is trying to dodge taxes? Well, that's the question that I would ask of so many people who work in the crypto space, who have very strong feelings about this. But even just in the finance sphere, successful technology entrepreneurs, it feels like so much of life is just revolving around trying to optimize their tax situation. And, you know, if you can have it all, fine. If, you know, if your dream is to live in Palm Beach, Florida, go for it. Or more recently, and again, this will be familiar to a lot of our crypto listeners, Puerto Rico. Puerto Rico, that's right. So Puerto Rico is the one place in the United States that you can live and not pay any taxes. And of course, you know, that does not come for free. Puerto Rico, as we saw during hurricane season a couple of years ago, it gets punished for that in a lot of ways. Um, but it does have this attractive tax status, which has attracted but, but, many, many but folks on, in the crypto space to move there. Let's talk about this. So let's say, um, and actually Puerto Rico was really popular before crypto as well. There are a lot of um, traders who moved down to Puerto Rico for both the lifestyle, you know, sun, sea, sand, as well as it the tax beautiful. situation, right? But here's my question to you. If you're living in Puerto Rico and you were living through um, the hurricanes that hit the island and you were left, you know, living in an environment where there was no power for six months, was that worth it? Absolutely not. No, that's, that's, I mean, pardon my French, that's totally effed. Right. And so this is, again, um, tax havens has, have been a part of history for a long time. What's been interesting to see um, is the political pressure that, um, nearby neighbor states, as the story we told at the beginning, uh, between Rhodes, Dallas, and Rome, right? That situation of uh, jurisdictions punishing tax havens, attempting to sort of ameliorate some of the beneficial impacts of being low tax has been really interesting. Um, and in fact, you know, a lot of what we see going on now with the Trump administration, tariffs, trade wars, a lot of that um, is an escalation of this fighting that really began the minute that global global commerce began um, as soon as people started getting on ships and forming caravans to cross the desert. So um, it all kind of ties back together, doesn't it? It does indeed. Right. Life. <laughs> avoid death, avoid taxes, or just accept both and enjoy. Like that's my view. I'm going <laughs> to pay taxes. I'm going to die. I'm going to have a really good time. <laughs> party on. All right, Jill. So why do we care? We just talked a lot about the history of taxes, tax havens, why they exist, but why should we care at all? Well, there's a very big reason to care. And here's why. 
if you are already rich, so taxes, first of all, and Jill, you just mentioned to me that there's a game that you can play. Um, it's, it's video game, I assume, or like some sort of computer game where actually the whole objective of the game is to evade taxes, right? That's right. It's hilarious. Yeah. It's, it's done by an organization of investigative journalists who broke the Paradise Papers, the Panama Papers, both, right. which we'll get into in a few minutes. But Jill, that game you describe is a game that rich people play every day. And the way they play this game is by hiring lawyers, accountants, uh, corporate uh, financiers, people who understand the nuances of tax law. And here's what's really interesting. Um, in the US, when you pay taxes, the IRS doesn't tell you what you owe. They give you thousands of pages of tax code and you have to go and figure out what applies to you and what doesn't. And it's more art than it is science. Well, there's this meme around this, right, that I love that's like, the government says to you, you owe us money. It's called taxes. And I say, okay, great. How much do I owe? And the government says, oh, you have to figure that out. Right. And I say, wait, I just pay what I want. And the government says, no, no, we know exactly how much you owe, but you have to guess that number too. Right. And if you get it wrong, you go to prison. Jail. (laughs) Right. So here, so here's, I'm going to tell a personal story just for a moment and it'll be relevant um, when we talk about why this matters. So here's a story for you. Uh, can I tell this story, Jill? Do you mind? By all means, take it away. It's a little Grandma crypto, we're all gathered around. <laughs> okay. So here's a really um, interesting personal story. So I was in business school, right? I was getting my MBA at MIT. Um, and during my first year of business, business school is expensive. Um, It's kind of like summer camp, but for two years for people who don't know what they want to do. So it's really funny. Um, But I was in business school. It's expensive. It costs a lot of money. Tuition's pricey. Um, So here I am. um, And they do all these different lunchtime talks. And in business school, I did not have a lot of money. So I would go to a lot of these lunchtime talks because they had lunch included. So I signed up for this lunchtime talk on optimizing your taxes while in graduate school. And I was like, oh, this sounds interesting. And so here I am, I'm sitting in this room and there's this CPA who's talking about a very specific part of the U.S. tax code that um, pertains to continuing education. And um, if you meet certain criteria, then going to graduate school can actually qualify as continuing education, which is a tax advantaged activity, meaning that your tuition is deductible from your taxes as an expense. Okay. So the CPA gaming gave this talk. I was like, whoa, I don't know what any of this means, but this is really interesting. So I went and had a meeting with him and I ended up making him my CPA. And um, I ended up using this part of the US tax code that was created expressly for this purpose. And I did this. And of course, when I did this, I was audited right? Of course. Getting a letter from the IRS, by the way, for everyone who's listening to this, that is the scariest thing ever. And the reason people are so deathly afraid of taxes, and this goes back to the meme, Jill, if you get it wrong, the consequences are not only fines, the consequences include jail time and having your assets frozen and everything seized. And it's, it's so bloody complex that it's near impossible to get it perfect, I think. Right. Well, and so that's why I pour all of this money into having an accountant 
do my taxes for me every single year because exactly I'm terrified of this. But here's what's so interesting, right? So I go to this audit and the way the audit works is um, the IRS sends you a letter. They tell you um, that they want to audit your taxes. And so what I did is I prepared, you know, folders upon folders, all my documentation. Cause of course um, one of the things actually having a CPA and working corporate finance taught me is really important to have records and to be able to sort of justify why you made the decisions you did and what information you used and how you sort of determined what part of the tax code applied to what part of your expenses. Um, And so it was really interesting because when you go in and you meet with the IRS, you're talking to an IRS examiner, right? And this person's going to look at all of these records. And some people, when they go in and talk to the IRS, they're totally unprepared. They don't have lawyers. They don't have CPAs. Like they're kind of screwed. And the thing is, if you're really rich, I'm by no means really rich. And in grad school, I was most definitely not. But I had a really great CPA who knew exactly what he was doing, had done this hundreds of times and could help me understand exactly what was happening and had helped me prepare my taxes. So all the documentation was there. And this is exactly why taxes are a game for rich people. So here's some statistics because we like numbers. More than 30% of the world's 200 richest people who have a $2.9 trillion collective net worth that, by the way, grows at 6 to 7% a year, according to the Bloomberg Billionaires Index, control large parts of their personal fortunes through offshore holding companies or other domestic entities where the assets are held indirectly. Why does oh this matter? God. Look yeah, break the, that down for me, Melton. Okay, so look at the WeWork IPO, right? Everyone's talking about the WeWork S1. When you buy shares in WeWork, you're not actually buying shares in We, we the company. I love this. I you love are buying shares. So the way WeWork structured, it looks like a Christmas tree. If you invest in the IPO, you're buying shares in a holding company that owns shares in another holding company that owns shares in an LLC that owns uh, some of the WeWork real estate and leases. But there's another investor who's offshore who owns another person. And so you're investing in this really complex, convoluted structure. Yeah, you were kind to call it a Christmas tree. You know what else a Christmas tree looks like? What? A pyramid. Well, I kid. I'm I not kid. here That's to not quite what's going on. on um, what is it? We are elevating human consciousness. Is that the first page of the S1? Is just oh that phrase? God. I'm not here to comment on that. But what I'm saying is if you have ever worked in private equity or MA or hedge funds or anything, structuring, and having good professionals who can help you figure out how to keep more of your money, that is exactly where it's at. Totally. And it, it's very parallel, I think, to a lot of what we've talked about in past episodes around financial engineering. That's another rich people's game, right? And a lot of what we're actually talking about here, yes, it's generally accountants looking at it instead of bankers. The lawyers might be the same, though. But this is its own form of financial engineering. It's just a matter of financial engineering using corporations instead of using complex derivatives. But so just to throw a few more numbers into the mix here, in 2016, American companies, because that's really what we're talking about here, even if it's an individual at the end of the, at the top of the pyramid, at the top of the Christmas tree, whatever we want to call it, Often they're using companies, right, to get wealth offshore. And so in 2016, American companies 
skipped out on about $130 billion worth of worth of taxes that they would have otherwise paid to governments all around the world. Um, and then there's about 70 billion of that that would, that would have flowed into Washington, D.C. And so just to put that in context, 70 billion, that can sound like a lot of money or a little bit of money, depending on kind of where you're coming from. But that would be equivalent to about one-fifth of all of the corporate income tax collected by the United States annually. So that's a whole one-fifth that's being skipped out on by U.S. corporations, which is not trivial, not trivial at all. Here's the other thing that's so interesting. This is a statistic I really like to use. So Apple, right? We all know the company Apple. Apple has more cash on its balance sheet that's domiciled overseas that they can't bring back into the U.S. without paying a lot of taxes. Apple has more money offshore as cash in foreign bank accounts than the entire market cap of all cryptocurrencies. <laughs> That is awesome. Isn't that a that great statistic? Cool. Like Apple has more free cash domiciled offshore than the entire crypto market cap. Totally. Well, so, okay, this is a nice segue, actually, because I want to go right into both the Paradise Papers and also the Panama Papers here. Jill, you're really getting after it today. I'm really enjoying <laughs> it. I don't know. I had a decaf coffee. I'm probably still running on it here. But so the Paradise Papers were a set of papers that came out a few years ago. Let's see. It was, I think, 2018, 2017, um, when an anonymous Reddit user hinted at the existence of them, which is kind of hilarious that, of course, this came out on Reddit, of all things. Um, and it turned out that a German newspaper had obtained uh, the Panama Papers around the same time. I actually, before I came into this episode in in my research of it i realized that i'd been confusing the two but the paradise papers were different they addressed much more corporate tax evasion or offshore tax accounts whatever you want to call them um whereas the panama papers were much more about individuals but so melton here you're talking about apple right so one thing that the paradise papers showed was that Apple, which, as we mentioned, had been domiciled in Ireland, uh -huh. still is largely domiciled in Ireland. Well, when Ireland went to tighten up some of its tax rules, guess what Apple did? They didn't keep them in Ireland. They didn't re-domicile them into the United States. They just moved billions to the English Channel Isle of Jersey, which we were talking about earlier, where the standard corporate tax rate is still zero. And so one of the really interesting things that the Paradise Papers showed, and they named Facebook, Twitter, Disney, Uber, Nike, Walmart, you name it, they were in the papers. But one of the really interesting things that they showed is it's basically like you're playing whack-a-mole, right? Like you can't just tighten the belt of a country or put political pressure on a given jurisdiction to up tax taxes because then you'll just lose the capital from Wait, that country. They'll Jill, just I just had there. a brilliant idea. Okay, Tell me. so you know how um, in the last few episodes, I feel like these ideas are converging. So we talk about physical jurisdiction really mattering for regulation and this idea of, you know, if you're not in a known physical jurisdiction, if you're in the atmosphere, if you're on a drone in open waters, um, then it doesn't count. So, or there's no clear jurisdiction. If you're on the block stream satellite. No, Nelson. here's my idea. Okay, so I'm going to get... Um, 
a ledger or Trezor, KeepKey, name your favorite hardware wallet. I'm going to put a bunch of my wealth on it. I don't really have any, but you know, the five Bitcoins I have, I'm going to tape it. Oh, we know, we know about the potato fund, Melton. <laughs> that, was a, that was a very <laughs> negative event. It was like a loss of 75% of the capital. It was fine. Um, I spent so much Bitcoin on random stuff, by the way. And I did all the taxes. Like starting in 2015 is terrible. So here's what I'm going to do, though. I'm going to take this hardware wallet and I'm going to tape it to drone. And then I'm going to fly that drone around. And then I won't have to pay taxes, right? That's your version of a tax dodge. I love this. Well, well, we need some sort of crypto tax dodge. I feel like we need like, um, what's the crypto equivalent other than a boating incident? <laughs> a special thanks to our sponsors at Voyager. In the time it takes me to finish this sentence, Voyager will have searched dozens of exchanges for the best price on my crypto trades. If you want fast, secure, efficient routes to access crypto, check out Voyager. They even have a special offer for you, you smart and savvy listener. Sign up today at investvoyager.com slash gears. That's investvoyager.com slash gears to earn $25 worth of Bitcoin when you download the app and register. So this is this is this is an interesting um this is an interesting thing that also comes up as we're traveling around as we travel across borders, right? You're supposed to declare if you're entering a country, if you're bringing in, usually it's over $10,000 worth of wealth. That's say, right? right. But so but what gold if, doesn't count in that anymore. Did you know that? That rule recently changed. I did no not know that. To no gold towards the 10000 That's yeah. so interesting. Okay. So gold no longer counts, but the question of cryptocurrency still remains. And so- if hypothetically, I mean, I would never be so foolish as to travel with private keys on me, but hypothetically, if I were and I had a ledger with $10,000 worth of Bitcoin on it, do I have to declare that? Because that also still comes back to this tax issue, right? Well, Jill, I have another story for you. <laughs> Take it away. <laughs> All right. So in... um the end of 2017, it was right after Christmas. I went down to Peru um, with one of the portfolio companies. I'm an investor and we went to like a little retreat and we were working on a bunch of stuff together. So I came back uh, from Peru in like December 29th or something. And I show up at the airport. Um, it was JFK, I think. And I have global entry. So, you know, I have my hat on. I'm dressed in my all black Lululemon travel <laughs> outfit. I'm looking a little jungly. We're in the middle of nowhere. I have my little suitcase and I'm walking through um, customs and uh, the customs officials actually pulled me aside. They were like, are you Meltem Demirers? I was like, I who's asking like I am. And they're like, yes, we need to speak with you, ma'am. And I was like, oh boy, like this is not good. So I text Here we my go. dad. I'm like, dad, I'm wiping my phone. I'm like, don't contact me. I'll let you know what happens. So they take me to their little room, right? They don't even do the thing where they just pull me aside and look at my bags. They immediately take me to the side room. Oh, and here's what they start doing. They take everything out of all of my bags. They examine the lining of my uh, suitcase. Um, they take everything out of my purse. And um, in my purse, I have, I'm looking at it right now, you know, I have a little uh, mini bag that I have little dongles in, you know, because I have a MacBook Air. So like I have all the dongles and cords and random things in there. So they empty out um, 
all of my purse. And in my purse, I also had uh, Brad Stevens at Blockchain Capital gave me a Bitcoin pin a long time ago. So I had this Bitcoin pin and someone had handed me a 3D printed like Bitcoin logo. So I had a few like Bitcoiny kind of nerd things. And so the uh, customs agent, right, the Homeland Security agent and the customs agent, there were three people in the room. They're pulling out all this stuff and they put all the Bitcoin stuff to one side. And I had a ledger in that in that little thing um, oh, because God. I use a ledger to like encrypt and decrypt things. I use it as a way okay, to store there private was, keys. Was there anything on it? No, no. Okay. Um, and so here we are, right? And I have like SIM cards and random stuff and they have um, everything else in my luggage is off to one side. Like they don't care about my dirty jungle clothes <laughs> and whatever. And then on the other side on a table, they have laid out um, all of my dongles, uh, a little book that has like a few different things written on it um, and my ledger. And they start asking me a series of questions. They're like, do you work in Bitcoin? I was like, I don't know what that means. Could you specify? Right. So they're like, well, do you own Bitcoin? I was like, I don't have to answer that question. But it basically was an interrogation, a very long interrogation where they asked me a lot of questions about um, what I was traveling with. They didn't ask me to log into my phone or my laptop, but this is why I disable um, the touch login on all of my devices. Oh, because yeah. I, you, that you can't be forced to enter a password, but you can be forced. Like if you have an iPhone X and you use face recognition, you're a moron. Because if you're in that situation, they're going to unlock your phone and they're going to go through all your wallets. And they're going to look at like if you have a block folio, even if you don't have those assets on you, right? Again, here's where things are confusing. The other thing that's hard to regulate, Jill, to your point is if I have a seed to a wallet in my brain, if I have brain wallet, mm-hmm. I have memorized am I transporting cash across borders? That's a, that's a tricky question, right? It's the example we talked about um, in the episode on banning Bitcoin, episode 24. If I travel across the border wearing a shirt with RSA encryption code on it, is that a weapon? Technically, yeah. yes. Practically, no. But I thought it was really interesting. And this will become relevant when we talk about the IRS and Bitcoin later on. I thought it was really interesting. Ultimately, nothing happened. But these people had so many questions. They knew exactly who I was. They knew exactly what they wanted to ask me. And so I thought it was very curious. I don't know if it had to do with the fact that I went to Peru. I don't know if it had to do with the fact that I was traveling alone during Christmas when typically people travel with families. My trip was fairly short. Maybe it was because I, they knew I was involved in Bitcoin somehow. I don't know what it was, but to this day, I have no Bitcoin stickers anywhere. I never travel with any Bitcoin anything. I always try to wear a hat and be inconspicuous. Um, but yeah, yeah. Was, these on people- my old on my old laptop, I have one of those crypt- cryptography stickers that says cryptocurrency is not a crime, and. I've never even thought twice about it. Girl, no. Until, exactly, until I was at the airport in a country where I should not have had that sticker on my laptop and it definitely got some second looks. I didn't have quite the same extreme of of experience as you did, but exactly. I mean, we all have that moment where we're like, oh, yeah, this is this is probably not right. So today, to what I was asking is, you know, um, I want to have a switch where, you know, if I touch maybe like my pinky to my fingerprint on my phone or push a certain sequence of keys, where it just wipes all the private keys from my phone and resets all my apps to zero. 
Yeah. Yeah. No, I love that. I love that. But okay. So let's return for a second here. Sorry, because that was a long this rabbit is, hole. Deep rabbit no, hole. No, it's, it's great. Yeah. Going deep. But so this is you talking about you as an individual crossing borders with money, right? So I want to return to the Panama Papers because this was a real kind of landmark case at least that came out to the general public. I think that one of the most interesting things about it is that it just gave us a hint of how big this is as a business of getting money offshore. And and what's fun about the Panama Papers is you know how they got all that data. Oh, yeah. Let's dive into that. Yeah, it's so fun. It's so because it's so crypto nerdy. So it's I like it. All right, you take it away, Jill. Tell us the story. Okay. So, all right. So, there's this law firm in Panama called Mossack Fonseca. I think I'm pronouncing that right. Um, and in 2016, I remember actually watching this on TV. I was in Argentina at the time. I was conducting research on Bitcoin. And it just felt so fitting that I was watching this play out in Argentina researching Bitcoin. It was April of 2016. And Mossack Fonseca at this point just notified their clients that they had sustained an email hack. Um, and they also told some news sources, look, the company has been hacked, um, but you know we've always operated within the law. Okay, not sketchy at all, right? But so the company, Mossack Fonseca, which was, of course, dealing with all of this really hypersensitive information for its clients... It had not been encrypting its emails. Jill, can we just talk about how hilarious (laughs) this is? And so, okay, not only had it not been encrypting its emails, but they were also running a three-year-old version of some software called Drupal that had several known, like, it was obviously exploitable vulnerabilities, um, which is just I mean, come on, guys. Like, if you're fine, if you are, you know, some dinky consumer facing app that's tinkering around, like, that's still not great. But if you are a law firm dealing with this highly, highly sensitive information where basically your only value add, one of your few value adds, it's basically where you're domiciled. And then also, of course, your discretion, get with the program. Um, But it didn't end there, right? There were also all of these reports then after the fact that the network architecture was insecure, um, that email and web servers were not segmented from the client databases in any way, like all of these crazily problematic. But you know what's so funny, Jill? You know how I was saying that um, if you're really wealthy, you can afford really great lawyers and really great accountants? Yes. You know what you should also do? Get a really pen test. <laughs> get a really great security consultant and protect yo shit. Girls just want to have privacy. Do a little bit of infosec. Do a little bit of appsec. Like be smart. <laughs> be smart. Exactly. <laughs> okay, continue. Exactly. So basically, Mosek Fonseca has all of this super sensitive data. They are the law firm that anyone goes to when they want to do some of this tax game. Um so what happened? Wait, there was there was one more, which was that uh, a hacker uh, managed to penetrate their system just using SQL injection, which is like, I don't even code and I know how to do SQL injection. This is just embarrassing. Um, 
And I mean, it just, the list goes on and on and on. You can read about it. There's a great book called Down the Rabbit Hole um, that a guy named uh, Chris Kubeka. Did you say rabbit hole, Jill? I did say (laughs) rabbit hole. (laughs) Um, Down the Rabbit Hole. Check it out if you're interested in the nitty gritty of this, if you want to nerd out on it. But long story short, all of these papers got leaked. And Lo and behold, all of these heads of state, the president of Argentina, where, again, I was at the time this was all being broken, the president of the Ukraine, um, the former prime minister of Australia, uh, Silvio Berlusconi from Italy, like everyone and their brother, it seemed like, was named in these papers as someone who had set up an offshore account and had basically engineered their way out of a tax dodge which okay the irony as well of all of these government officials dodging their own damn policies let's just take a second to think about that right but wait that hold on bad. so this is where um i want to talk about really quickly bank secrecy right so do you know why switzerland became a tax haven Tell me. Okay. So Switzerland became a tax haven in the 1700s when European royalty started to stash their cash in Swiss banks. And um, the Swiss Federation actually changed a number of laws that allowed people instead of having... So in the US, when you open a bank account, what information do you need? You need a driver's license and you need a utility bill. You need all sorts of stuff that lets the bank know who you are. And the bank has to report that, right? That's part of the BSA or the Bank Secrecy Act. Switzerland was the first place that created something called the numbered bank account. And so what that is, is it's kind of like um, a private key, right? Where if you have the numbers to the bank account, if you know the account number, that's the only information you need. There's no ID attached to it, nothing. And so it's really funny because to your point about the Paradise Papers, people have been doing this for a long, long time. In the 1700s, when the printing press started to facilitate the spread of information, right, just like the internet now enables the rapid dissemination of information, printing press, 1700s, royalty, lots of revolutions. Whenever there's wealth inequality, there's revolution people started stashing their cash in numbered bank accounts. And it's been the preferred way for European royalty to preserve their wealth and evade tax. I just want to make one correction, which was that the Gutenberg printing press was first invented in 1450, I think. But I see where you're going with it. Printed materials, right? Like periodicals, newspapers, et cetera, were popularized really in the 1700s and into the 1800s with the I just want to troll you for that before. I just want to troll you for that before one of our Twitter followers. I know. uh, Totally fair. Totally fair. Anyway, yeah, I totally see where you're going with it. And I think that that's a really nice segue actually into the next piece of this, which is a very closely related topic, although not completely overlapping, which is financial privacy, right? Because a lot of what people are looking for, the reason why the Panama paper leak was such a big deal and the Paradise paper leak after that and so on is because, again, these people are looking for discretion and they deeply value, it turns out, their own financial privacy. But John, um, don't you think that they would, you, you know how when, um, we were joking about this the other day. So you know how when you and I or an enterprise procures a new service provider, we do a lot of due diligence on their systems and their infrastructure to make sure it's up to our standards. Like if you had 
billions of dollars and you're trying to hide them. Would you not do just a little bit of due diligence on the people you were using to do that? Like this is what blows my mind because it's so basic. I think yes and no though. I mean, I think probably often, not always, but often these people, they're not dealing with it themselves. They've hired people on. There are layers and layers and layers of people of intermediaries basically that are doing the dirty work, right? And so it doesn't shock me that at some point quality control goes down the drain. Well, I guess it depends on how good you are. If you're really good, then maybe just nobody cares. Anyways. But so let's go back though to this idea of financial privacy and bank secrecy. Mm-hmm. Because as you point out, this is one of the huge things that Switzerland offered was this numbered bank accounts. I always think of like the classic, the end of the James Bond movie, right? Where he's given the six digit number and there's the the image of him getting off the plane in Geneva which, and driving way, in his Aston Martin around Lake Geneva and going Which, to by the, the way, now in the show Billions um, is a ledger with Bitcoin on it. That's given. I love me. that. I <laughs> that's love like that. the modern day. That's the hipster, like Brooklyn, ver- it's the Brooklyn equivalent of a numbered account. <laughs> it's a ledger. <laughs> oh my God. But, okay, but the era of Swiss bank accounts, of numbered Swiss bank accounts, has come to an end, right? As of 2018, you're not allowed to do this anymore. And this was a huge coup for, I think it was the European Union, the European Commission that really put pressure on Switzerland and Swiss authorities to end this standard. And this is all part, of course, of a rising tide of concern around KYC, AML, financial transparency, etc. But look, here's here's my thing, Jill. Life is a long game of cat and mouse, right? And every whack-a-mole, time, as I call it. Every time the cat gets a little bit smarter, the mouse learns. This is why I love Tom and Jerry as a kid, right? <laughs> the mouse gets a little smarter. The cat gets smarter. They spar, and then the mouse figures out a new way. Um, okay, but here's here's what we're talking about. One of the popular narratives in the cryptocurrency world, or actually one of the most popular narratives outside of crypto world in Washington, D.C. and in places where rules get made, is that people are using cryptocurrencies to evade taxes. And I think you and I are in agreement here that that is actually the most ridiculous thing I've ever heard. Yeah. I I mean, I don't doubt that there are people who are trying to do this. Not recommended. Let's just leave it at that. And I think a great example, and here's a book recommendation for our listeners. Um, there's a massive scandal that was uncovered last year, actually over the last 18 months, maybe. Um, it's called 1MDB. And it was this Malaysian fund run it. by someone called Joe Lowe. It's one of the best books I've read in a long time, best nonfiction books called Billion Dollar Will. Highly recommend. Uh, two reporters wrote it. But basically, um, this guy, this Malaysian guy who uh, was really fairly young, raised a bunch of money from the Malaysian government because he was very close to the prime minister. 
billions of dollars. Goldman Sachs was involved. Goldman Sachs being investigated as part of it. A number of Goldman Sachs bankers in Asia went to jail. Falcon Bank in Switzerland actually was also involved in this. They, as a result, have had a bunch of problems and have you know had to face those. But basically, um, this guy took this money that he raised from the Malaysian government, and he didn't actually invest it in anything. He spent it on himself. And the things he spent it on, the things he used to evade taxes and stash his wealth, well, Hollywood movies. So he invested in the Wolf of Wall Street. Um, He bought a lot of art. So as things were going south, he would buy art and he now keeps that art um, on his yacht with him. His yacht is in international waters. So it's not really clear like what jurisdiction he's in, but it's the craziest story ever. But nowhere in that story did Joe Lowe or anyone involved ever even think of using Bitcoin to evade taxes because it's a terrible idea. Right. Right. Yeah, exactly. I mean, what you're talking about here, though, it just makes me think of all of the other ways that people evade taxes, right? It's not It's not just about these offshore entities. It's often about putting your wealth into art, into jewelry, into cars. Real estate, real estate, right? And there's this great so there's a great movie um, about John Paul Getty called All the Money in the World, and it's based on the true story of John Paul Getty, who was, of course, the wealthiest man in the world um, as of I want to say like 50 years ago or so. And he, his grandson, gets kidnapped and held for ransom, and he is portrayed as this sort of crotchety old man who. Oh, this movie's so horrible. Um, But there's this great quote that he says uh, in which he says, you know, the thing is not to get rich. Getting rich, anyone can do that. The thing is to stay rich. And it shows him in, you know, one of the big sort of plot things at the end of the movie is that the whole reason why if you go into any museum in the world, if you, you know, there are so many wings of museums, libraries that have the artifacts that he amassed. Um, and the reason for that was because he was amassing them as a tax dodge on his tax write off. Yeah. yeah, totally. Okay. So this is another interesting trend. And this is the last thing we'll sort of talk about before we dive into the crypto bit. So there's a new trend in the United States, and that is that wealthy people are asking to be taxed. So obviously, right now it's election season. A lot of politicians are talking about a wealth tax, but a bunch of wealthy people are also asking to be taxed. And there's a really great Planet Money podcast episode. Planet Money is an NPR podcast on this topic. But here's basically what's going on. Every revolution in human history has typically started when there is great wealth inequality. And as you pointed out, Jill, what the Panama Papers revealed was this massive, not only wealth inequality, but the fact that the wealthy are getting wealthier faster and amassing wealth much more quickly than anyone else. And so basically what's happening is as the global economy grows, more and more and more of it goes to that really small group of people who control all the wealth, who have all the lawyers, who have all the accountants, who know all the tax dodges. And so what's basically happening is um, there's this great inequality that's being created and nobody wants to be at risk because there's going to be some sort of populist revolution. And so what's really interesting here is these wealthy people are asking to be taxed on their wealth. And the idea is that they would pay a 2 to 3% tax on 
their net worth. And the interesting thing is this is actually a great example of another tax dodge. And using a tax dodge, yeah. yes, it's all—it's always all about the tax dodge, right? So basically, the idea is if they appease the populace by saying we're going to pay two to three percent tax on our on our net worth, and instead of doing like a lot of tricky valuation, let's not even get into how you're going to value people's stuff or even figure out what they have. But let's say that most people play by their rules, and there's this wealth tax. The thing is that for these people, their wealth grows at a much faster rate because it's growing in jurisdictions where. It's it's not taxed. And so what's really interesting is in fact, all they're doing is just slightly slowing the growth rate. So instead of it being seven or 8% a year, it's 6% a year. And so I think it's just really interesting um, how these narratives around taxation unfold because you see these political discussions and people talk about taxes in a very simplistic way, but in fact, taxes are very complex. Um, and again, it's more art than science. And so whenever someone starts talking about taxation, my ears sort of perk up because buried in there somewhere is some sort of incentive for someone to get away with something. Right, right, exactly. And that's sort of the fun of this, right, is to start to be able to dissect it. Um, and, you know, this is the job, of course, of investigative journalists who are the ones who broke the Panama Papers and the Paradise Papers and so on. And forensic accountants. That's right. And now, getting into crypto, segueing over there, we have a new form of forensic accounting that is very easily executed, of course, when everything is tracked on a single transparent ledger. Yes. Single ledger accounting via blockchain. <laughs> All right, I'm going to cut death and taxes and crypto. Let's do yeah. it. So it would not be an episode of What Grinds My Gears if we did not grind for a little bit on crypto. But so what I want to talk about here, and I don't even think that there is that much to say around it because we've already ground on it a little bit, is just this narrative that Bitcoin is a tax dodge. It's okay. Can I just say for a moment... Um, I've been having this conversation for the last five years with a variety of different people who I think are very intelligent, but when it comes to taxes, all of a sudden they start acting like fools. A hundred percent. And they're like, oh, if, you know, if I sell Bitcoin and I buy Ether, that's not taxable. That's like for like, I'm like, nah, boo-boo, when you sell Apple to buy Google, <laughs> that's taxable. <laughs> like, yep. I don't understand. I do not understand, good sir. So, um, yeah, I think it's interesting. For some reason, when crypto and taxes come up, I feel like everyone forgets everything we know that we literally just spoke about for the last 40 minutes. The moment you talk about crypto, people are like, new paradigm, no taxes. And I'm like, that is the most insane thing I've heard in a long that's time. That's not a thing. I mean, that's that's the equivalent of saying, as people said to you in the House of Representatives a few weeks ago, oh, well, crypto is not regulated, right? No, sweetie, it's it's regulated, it's, it's taxed, pay it's your right. taxes, they will find you, you're doing transactions on a public ledger, you're not Satoshi, you got your fingerprints all over the internet, pay yeah, your taxes. And everyone's sniffing your data, so like that VPN you thought you had, you ain't that smart, bunny. Yeah, exactly. pay, pay your taxes. Exactly. But let's talk about this. Okay. So here's the history of crypto and taxes. Um, the first big case in the crypto space was the Silk Road case, right? Indeed. 
Yep. And uh, the Silk Road case ended in seizure because the person who supposedly perpetrated um, the Silk Road crimes uh, was a U.S. resident, U.S. citizen, and had servers, was doing this in the U.S. at a public library. Um, and so the, um, the DOJ, the Department of Justice, seized those Bitcoin. And so that was Silk Road. Um, and then the IRS in 2016 issued a letter. It's Notice 2014-21. And this very clearly stated, and I quote, that for federal tax purposes, virtual currency is treated as property. General tax principles applicable to property transactions apply to transactions using virtual currency. Pretty clear. Pretty damn clear. Almost as transparent as a blockchain, I would say. <laughs> well, it depends on what blockchain, Jill. <laughs> That's, LOL. True. That's true. LOL. LOL. I say lols because um, I think privacy coins, the their ability to stay private is quite overrated. But it's, uh, it's hard. It's possible. It's hard. And I think the possibility is what's important. But we can circle back to that in the next episode if we want. But I do, I do want to make the point, to be fair, there are a handful of areas that are a little confusing when it comes to crypto and taxes or just plainly a pain in the ass. And one of these, my favorite one, is the airdrops, the giveaways, the forks, the splits. You know, is it is it the case that your Bitcoin gold, is that like your cow giving birth to another cow? Or is that like a dividend that you've received, right? So there are these areas of confusion, like, of ambiguity. Okay, so I haven't logged into um, my Ether wallet in a really long time. Oh, good every, heavens, me neither. But every time I do it, there's like more random shit coins in my wallet because a lot of these airdrops drop to anyone who had an Ether address. And I don't even know what these things are, but like I suddenly have this random dust, right? Yeah, the first time that I did this, actually, I like, I literally, I think I called you maybe, and I was like, I don't know what to do. There's all this shit that I didn't buy in here. What is this? You're like, oh, sweetie, those those were airdrops. Congratulations. I know, I was like, that's, that's airdrop dust. Yeah, by the now way, the proud owner. <laughs> by the way, um, this is what Stellar did. Do you remember this? I do remember. Yeah, of course. Yeah, so Stellar um, airdropped Stellar to everyone who had Bitcoin, except people who had a lot of XRP, which is so, it's like the best type of shade. Savage. (laughs) So savage. (laughs) Okay. So you just talked about splits, airdrops, and giveaways. Um, I want to talk about another one that's a little bit dorkier, which is one of my favorite topics, is life or FIFO, which is how you deplete your coins. So life, so I apologize. I worked in finance and in particular, um, I did a lot of work on tax structuring as someone who worked in M&A. Like the first question is, what's the most tax optimal way to do this? So um, LIFO is last in, first out. FIFO is first in, first out. So the idea is if I own, say, 10 Bitcoin and I sell one, what I need to do is obviously I know the price that I sold the Bitcoin at, but how do I determine which of those 10 Bitcoin I actually sold? So there's two accounting treatments. The first one is to say the last Bitcoin I bought is the first Bitcoin I sell, which is last in, first out. And there's another approach that is first in, first out, which says the first Bitcoin I ever bought way back when is the first one I sell. Now, again, um, it's really interesting because your plan to deplete your Bitcoin impacts which 
tax treatment you'd use. So if you don't intend to ever sell a lot of Bitcoin, last in, first out makes a lot of sense because your Bitcoin that you bought later is the Bitcoin you sell first. So your tax base will be smaller. If you do at some point plan to sell all your Bitcoin though, it might be preferable to do FIFO. So those cheaper Bitcoin you bought, you sell at an earlier date, pay less tax on. So the Delta is much smaller. So this LIFO FIFO question is a really interesting one. And I, for the last two years, have been using token tax to do all of my crypto taxes because I can just import um, spread sheets from all of these exchanges and it automatically links up with the API. So I don't really end up doing a lot of work and it's really a nice tool. There's a lot of other tax tools that do that, but I use token tax personally, not an ad. I'm not an investor. I'm not paid to say that. Um, but in there, you can actually toggle back and forth to do LIFO or FIFO treatment to see which what the tax impact would be of those different treatments. So it's a little dorky, but I think it's an interesting question um, of how you plan to deplete an asset that maybe you do plan to hold for a long time. Totally, totally. And then, I mean, there are a few other areas of this, right, where there are questions that will always remain, I feel, around what is the valuation of your crypto or what's the fair market value. A lot of these things aren't liquid enough. There's questions of market manipulation to contend with. Um, there's questions around staking income. I would kind of put that in the same category as stock splits uh, or as, excuse me, not stock splits, forks. But, <laughs> same difference. But it though. isn't, Jill, because if you're staking, um, you're taking risk. And um, in some cases, you're expending energy. So I think it's... You're providing a service to the network. So, and so there's this whole question of whether it's like UBTI income. Yeah, there are all like kinds of things. Is it like 1099 risk like work income. That's actually um, an interesting thing in the IRS piece I mentioned, um, IRS code 2014-21. And I know a lot of IRS tax codes, which is really scary. That says something about me. But in there, actually, one of the topics that comes up is if you're a miner, is the Bitcoin you earn from mining 1099 MISC income, as in um, salary income and self-employment income. And as you know, self-employment carries another 17% tax on top of like all the other taxes. I don't know if you yeah. knew this. It's really messed up. I learned it this year when I paid a really big tax bill and it was really bad. I think you mentioned this to me, which I think is the only reason why I know it. Yeah. So uh, if, if, you're mi if you earn mining income, though, you could potentially have to pay another 17% on it as self-employed income because the idea is you should be paying Social Security and Medicaid and Medicare and like all the other social taxes on top of just also the income taxes. It's it's nutty. Like I said, like of every dollar I make, I think 70 cents goes to the US government at some point. So I should just give up and kill myself now. Do the death <laughs> and stop the taxes. <laughs> what happened to cryo and crypto, Velta? I don't, I'm feeling depressed now, Jill. Yeah. So what's really interesting, right? So the question to me, so the first topic that comes up a lot is de minimis taxes. Do you want to talk about the de minimis oh, question, Jill? Oh my God. Yeah. So, I mean, this is whenever anyone talks to me about crypto payments, this is where my head goes. It's like, I, I think that yes, like lightning is going to take us closer to that. I think that there are all of these innovations on the technology side that are going to get us there. You have to do the counting on that one Satoshi I tipped you yesterday. Exactly. I mean, Meltem, you know, I have this joke with you where anytime I owe you money for anything, what do I pay it to you in? I don't want to talk about this. 
I pay it to her in ETC, you guys. I pay it to her in Ethereum. You're an classic. asshole, Jill. I just want to tell I you. I am. You're an asshole. I am. Because that $300 you paid me a few months ago in ETC <laughs> is worth like $100 right now. So you're an <laughs> asshole. But I'm also an asshole because I now have to pay taxes on this. I have to deal with the tax the the tax code around the three hundred dollars worth of etc that I bought and then sent to you Girl. and effectively sold. Okay, I right? want to tell a quick grandma story. I'll keep it really brief. So in two thousand fifteen, right? I was so I never spent a Bitcoin for two thousand fifteen, mostly because I didn't know how to, and you really couldn't, and the price of Bitcoin only went down. So like, there's no opportunities. So two thousand fifteen, I'm like working in crypto investing, super cool. Um, I had a Coinbase account for the first time, super cool. And um, in two thousand fifteen, right? So um, there's this new product that came out. It's called the Shift Card. It was a Visa card that was linked to your Coinbase wallet. Yeah, I remember what it was. It would allow you to spend your Bitcoin um, by linking your wallet to this this Visa debit card. And so I thought this was super cool. I like took a picture of it. It's on Twitter somewhere. I was so excited about it. I took a picture of it, obviously blocking out the card number. Um, I even researched. That's how I found Metropolitan Bank because they were the issuer of the card. And that's how I learned about the relationship between Metropolitan and Coinbase. Total sidebar, read all your T's and C's. Super fun information in there. Um, but I had this card and I was like, this is so cool. So I had a lot of work travel coming up. And so what did I do? I bought a bunch of stuff with my shift card and uh, I thought it was really fun. And I was like, oh, I'm spending Bitcoin. So first and foremost, um, I bought a burrito. I bought sushi. I bought wine. That burrito, it's nowhere near the 10,000 Bitcoin uh, pizza. But uh, it feels that way to me. That was a very expensive burrito in <laughs> hindsight. And then the other Indeed. pieces, my taxes were a pita, a pain in the ass. It was so yep. shitty, Jill, because I had yep. to figure out, do I do last in or first, uh, last in, first out or first in, first out? What Bitcoin did I spend when I bought my freaking burrito? At what cost did I acquire that Bitcoin? I had been like lightly buying Bitcoin on Coinbase, but a lot of the Bitcoin I had gotten, I had gotten from like faucets or bought in 2014 and 2015 early. So I like had to go back and try to figure out what did I pay for these coins. Like it was it was the worst experience of my life. And after that, I never spent Bitcoin again because it was a PETA. A PETA. But so, okay, look, to wrap this up though, here's the thing. Pay your taxes, kiddos. Pay your taxes on your crypto. Don't try and do this funny tax dodge. If you want to move to Puerto Rico, go for it. That's your prerogative. You're still going to have to pay taxes on your Bitcoin in Puerto Rico, by the way. You get to hang out with Brock Pierce, though. Um, <laughs> but crypto has not solved the tax problem any more than I believe, and I'm a skeptic. Cryogenics has solved the death problem. So just Ooh, look, face reality. Pay your taxes. Pay Don't your taxes. Don't go to jail. <laughs> Don't get audited. And... Um, if you are going to do your taxes, do them really well, have lots of documentation. Um, and then like one of the things you should probably do at some point is talk to someone about your taxes. If you're paying a lot, like just talk to someone that's really helpful. Just like people are experts in different things. <laughs> no, but no, you're well, yes, you may have to talk to a therapist after you do your crypto taxes. Um, but look, token tax for me, four hours last year is all the time I spent on my crypto taxes. Boom. There it, it is. It takes some time. 
it, the first year I did it, it took a little bit of time to get it all set up. And there was like a bunch of stuff to figure out, but they're super helpful there. Again, lots of other tools that do it, but, um, yeah, these are public ledgers, pay your taxes. That's very true. All right. Well, thanks so much for tuning in. Tune in next week for more grinding. Hey, this is Jill and Melton. Thanks for joining us for another week of What Grinds My Gears. We love hearing from you. So please hit us up on Twitter, send us feedback, join the conversation. Follow us on Medium at What Grinds My Gears, where we share a summary of each week's episode, references, reading materials, and of course, memes. Our episodes go live weekdays at 7 a.m. Eastern time. And if you're a crazy person like us, make sure you subscribe on iTunes so you never miss an episode and get it in time for your morning commute. Share it with your friends or better yet, share it with your enemies. Thank you so much for listening. We love you and we'll see you next time for What Grinds My Gears.